I imagine walking with Karen in a field in southern Africa, the smell of petrichor rising off the earth from a recent heavy rain. She charts the accumulation of moisture before asking farmers how they've been asked to adapt and still cultivate a rapidly changing land. She turns to me, a knowing look in her eye, and points out policies we think help conservation, but invisibilize the people asked to carry them out. I can't imagine Karen wearing a hand-knit hat meant to look like Appa, the flying bison from the animated series Avatar, The Last Airbender. Or her walking into a crowded Denver Comic-Con conference beaming a smile that only grows the more she talks on panels about mythical beasts, feminism, and diversity. What I learned about Karen is that she seamlessly steps in and out of her interests in conservation, social justice, Africa, equity, fantasy, podcasting, and more. She does this with an ease that is so inviting it leaves me thrilled to follow whatever thread our conversation will take next. You can't imagine this person exists until you talk to Karen. Sand, we call this bringing together of the impossible, the alchemy of anding. Together, we'll hear stories of humans who imagine and create by colliding their interests. Rather than thinking of and as a simple conjunction in that conjunction-junction kind of way, we will hear stories of people who see and as a verb, a way to speak the beautiful when you intentionally let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. As St. Mary Oliver asks, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Oh, I love this question. When I'm mothering, creating, and collaborating, it reminds me to replace a singular idea of what I think I should become with a full sensory verb about experiencing. I'm Erica Randall, and this is Karen Bailey on The Ampersand. I started the podcast or was selected for this podcast focused on women of color creators during the summer of 2020. Uh, as a black woman, right, I think I was particularly impacted by the Black Lives Matter movement and all the social unrest that was happening following uh, George Floyd's murder. And I, I think I realized, and this actually I think tracks well with my academic trajectory as well, but the, the sort of desire to link lived experiences yes. to creatures as well. And so... Part of it was the reality that people of color, queer folks, folks with disabilities are poorly represented in fiction. And so often they're hyper fictionalized. Yeah, right. <laughs> they're either not there. Right. Or, or it's or, yeah. exactly or become um, magical. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what I found as a, a lover of fiction is that I had a tendency, I think, in part because of my interest in ecology and wildlife, but also not seeing myself uh, represented in the human characters. I was sort of drawn to the fictional creatures. Yeah. And so realizing that in the context of all the sort of, all the sort of social justice uh, issues that were front of mind for everyone, I wanted to talk to people from backgrounds historically, contemporarily underrepresented in fiction about the creatures they connect to and why. And yeah, I think. Well, and like unicorns and queer bodies, yeah. that comes up all the time exactly. as a bisexual one. Oh, you're a unicorn. And right. like, OK, yes. And but then when you try to look at in terms of venery, what is a group of unicorns? And I really tried to. Mm -hmm. Enter into the Urban Dictionary mm -hmm. a sparkle of unicorns. Nice. I really wanted to connect that language to truth. I'm that. on board. I'm yeah. on board. <laughs> but it does feel, I think that's true. I think we have mascots yeah. that are fictional. Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it was really fun. I ended up interviewing, I think, like six of my friends. And we talked about the creature Appa from Avatar The Last Airbender, if you're familiar. And yes. in that conversation, we talked, uh, I, it was an interview with my my friend who's queer. And she talked a lot about her sort of battle with depression and how that kind of manifested in her perspective surrounding Appa and other creatures from that TV show. I interviewed another friend about the villain... Uh, Ridley from the Metroid video game series, but a lot of it for him was just wanting to, to not not be normal, right, and not wanting to be the man or like yeah. the person and wanting to be something unique. Well, it's an extreme form of anding when we think about what this podcast is doing mm-hmm. and looking at the way folks and mm. the fact that you have and it was really hard to find out things about you as a person <laughs> when I was researching your work I just kept like where's Karen from and what's <laughs> where's Karen's weird and what and how does that show up and as an artist it kind of shows up for me it's like splashed all over mm-hmm. even you know my research statements and things like that and and I was like oh man I'm gonna have I can't crack the code here so I'm super <laughs> excited to get to talk to you in human form and that we're across from each other and it just brings me back to why we're even here today to talk about anding. And I wondered, did you start in your becoming of yourself Mm -hmm. and you're becoming on this path towards anding through looking at how uh, human experience and satellite experience, Mm -hmm. the stories of both, the Mm -hmm. stories of bodies, the stories of of data. Uh, Did you find that the human that you are, the way that you get excited led you to that? Yes. So I think it all it, it I think it does all stem from my sort of deep inherent love of the environment. And again, kind of going back to the podcast, the the intro to it talks about the moment when I kind of realized what the podcast should be about. And it was when watching the movie Princess Mononoke for the first time, which happened relatively recently and I'm a little ashamed of because it's a story about like uh, a girl trying to, you know, align the needs of people and the needs of the environment. And that's it's sort of exactly what I do in life. What I realized was the, the way that fiction and stories about really anything are told to us. And I guess I do I do latch on to, to fiction and really the idea of the hero's journey, because that's usually how you're introduced to a new world is with this hero that, you know, lost their family, has to travel to a new galaxy or to an entirely new land. And it is that transportation into a new land that I, I find really fascinating and I think is tied to my sort of fascination with the environment and sort of non-human beings in general. But what I've sort of realized when I was thinking about how these stories work is the protagonist, by virtue of needing to tell the story of this new world is is foreign to it. They're being dropped into the new world the same way the reader is, mm-hmm. uh, right? And that's how they sort of tell yeah. you, oh, what does this mean? What does that mean? That's how they can have yes. the sort of, you know, the ex- explanation. Yeah. But the creatures, they're of this universe. They're of this world. They are part of it. And so you get to see what the world really is and what it means and how it manifests through those creatures in a way that I think is really special and unique than sort of what the protagonist is doing as a foreigner to the world. And so I think that... I think that's sort of linked to my desire to maybe I think I I kind of feel not of the world in a way and like this world, Earth, the real world, in a way that animals and wildlife and plants are. That's maybe where it all started is wanting to (laughs) feel that connection to to the Earth and feeling it through, I think, fiction and and creatures and then wildlife and nature as well. So. I'm, this is, I have a thought, my brain is going in a thousand different ways because I'm so excited to get to meet you, Karen. And I feel like as someone who, um, yeah, I have to get into the body of it. I want to like see, smell, taste, touch. What does it look like when I imagine you're 
in a farm in Africa. Mm-hmm. What is the time? I just I would love to hear from you what your what your body looks like while you're doing the research overseas, and then maybe what your body looks like sitting at, at <laughs> yeah. your computer. You know, because that's important too. That's part of the story. But yeah. can you talk yeah. to me just about what that what that looks like? So, yeah, two things came to mind, and, and I think it's it's important to talk about both because they're linked in my mind. So I'm I'm trained as an ecologist, and my background is in wildlife ecology and conservation. I was down in in Eswatini trapping rodents for my first field season of my dissertation, and I've been doing it for about three months. And and at the same time, one of the worst droughts in recorded history was happening in Southern Africa. And so I was actually trapping rodents in maize fields that were dying, in grazing lands that were not providing sufficient, you know, um, food for uh, cattle and livestock, very visible impacts to the landscape that I was seeing. You know, I, I would go to a community member's house to, to trap rodents or to ask for permission. And just down the road would be Red Cross uh, distributing bags of maize and oil and things like that because people couldn't support their families. So I think it was just that that stark reality and being amongst the community. But then also kind of, again, this this point that I was making earlier about the connectivity between systems of oppression and systems yes. of environmental uh, degradation being linked. And I thought back to my mom, who, you know, is from uh, she's from Memphis, Tennessee. She grew up poor in the 60s. And honestly had similar experiences, right, to to, in terms of living with rodents, for example, not always having access to electricity, for example, right? That was her lived experience. And then I'll often share a headline to sort of illustrate the impact of the drought which was sort of uh, students, pupils come to school just for eat, just to eat, was kind of the 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 gist of of the headline. And me thinking back to my experiences growing up in South Central, formerly South Central, uh, now Central Los Angeles, and and seeing the same thing, right? Students who don't have food at home and have to come to school in order to eat. Yes. And so really just linking the experiences of communities in Eswatini and Southern Africa, particularly experiencing this drought with the struggles that my communities and communities of color that I had grown up with were experiencing as well. And so it was at that point that I like, I finished my field season. I came back to the, the U.S. I was in Florida um, in grad school and I just had this really intense breakdown <laughs> Uh, and, and like reckoning. So you didn't have all this articulated for yourself until... <laughs> no. Uh, no. Yeah. So this was post-breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. Where it yeah. just... That's where all the, the constellation became clear. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it was at that point after, you know, a, a, a while of kind of iterating with my very understanding advisor. I'll always be grateful to him for supporting this shift. Yeah. That I wanted to study how people were responding to the drought, what that meant for their health and well-being, what that meant for their relationships with the environment, the impacts on the environment, and really just broadly thinking about human-environment interactions, uh, as I often categorize my work as a direction that I wanted to pursue. Um, And so that's what I do now. (laughs) I'm super interested in those moments where we collide with, I don't know if it's ourselves or if it's our next, or I'm really interested in those moments. And I do think that this opening to to the more that starts to come up in our body. Like when I, I remember for me, I wanted to be a dancer. I wanted to be a professional dancer. I wanted to be in New York. But when I started working in film, that's mm-hmm. when I actually started feeling mm-hmm. connected. So here I was, someone who worked in three dimensions all the time, mm-hmm. but felt more in my story with what I could manipulate in 2D and how I could tell a story that I couldn't get my body to fully tell because it was 
fighting the stories in and of itself. So mm-hmm. I had to be able to enter into different kind of portals of myself, which film could do, that I couldn't figure out how to do besides just being more awesome as a dancer. <laughs> but film, I could be less awesome and more mm-hmm. myself because I could, I could, I don't know, I could, I could pull apart time. Yeah. But I, I, I mean, I remember just, yeah, the feeling in my body where I, had to, I felt like I had to make a choice. Mm-hmm. And did you feel like you had to make a choice between what you were doing with ecology as you moved into also connecting to humans? Or do you feel like like in that moment of breakdown with your advisor, in that moment of processing and mentorship, did it feel like you had to either or it? Or did you feel like you could combine it but change lanes? How did it – yeah, and and wh- why did it feel so hard mm-hmm. at first? Because you describe it as a, as a breakdown. Why did it yeah. feel hard? Yeah. I mean, I think it was hard for a lot of reasons. One is just the reality of deciding to – essentially, I was deciding to kind of throw away the last three months of field research, the last three months of data that I had collected in the midst of my dissertation. And I think that's – yeah, that's major. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a loss. And then, yeah, I think there's this sort of process of kind of, you know, there's some self-definition that goes along with deciding to pursue a PhD and research a specific topic and then deciding not to do that. <laughs> yeah, especially when it's something that is... It's shaping who you are. Exactly. It's part of how you communicate. It's yeah. part of how you connect. Mm-hmm. And then, then, then there was the reality that I had been trained as an ecologist and at that point had, I guess, like one and a half degrees in ecology. But then I decided to be a social scientist. So the challenge of going and pivoting and now having to take all these classes and read all these books and sort of reconfigure my entire committee <laughs> to, yeah. to figure out how to do that work and how to do it well. So that, that was challenging, too. And then I, I think... But I did see it as – I didn't see it as the end of being an ecologist. I, I definitely thought it was an opportunity to to and yeah. and to be interdisciplinary and kind of intersectional in, in my approach to this work. And I still – I still hang out with ecologists. I still call myself an ecologist, although I will often qualify it. <laughs> and actually, ecologists tell me to stop doing that. <laughs> uh, I think because the discipline itself is is having a bit of a, a reckoning in this moment and looking at its history and and why more sort of interdisciplinarity and anding couldn't happen uh, to this moment. So so yeah, I mean, I think it was challenging I, at at this moment. I think I. I try and I work with a lot of ecologists. I am ensuring that environmental data is being collected in some way when I'm doing work, even if I'm focusing on the sort of human and social data piece of it. But, you know, I still do and understand how to do and can advise students in doing ecological research. So, yeah, it's it felt more it definitely was a choice, but it felt like a blending more so than a removal or a cutting out some piece. In my imagination, I've, I talking about rainfall and, and measurement. I mean, I really I didn't see you with rodents. I saw you with rain. Mm-hmm. Did you ever get to be with rain or did you mostly be with rodents? Yeah, I definitely got to be with rain. You got yeah. to be with rain, and um, and so I, I thinking. I about... also love Toto, so just <laughs> that's, I know. it's my go-to karaoke. This was song. something I was when I was talking to my uh, fiance about. It, I was like, I can't, I can't mention Toto. I can't mention Toto. I can't mention the rain sound in Africa. I can't say. It. And then all I wanted to do was say it. But you, thanks for saying it. <laughs> We're going to change our theme song for this episode. I I support it. It's a great song. Okay, great. It it was the song that my kid first held hands to with the live percussion ensemble of the Colorado Symphony playing Toto's. So I am really, um, thank you. I I can now, now we can really talk freely that that's on the table. (laughs) But just, so when I, but I think about there's the collecting of rain Mm -hmm. and there's the collecting of 
satellite data about mm-hmm. rain, mm-hmm. and I and looking at the graphs, they they line up mm-hmm. like the, the experience on the ground and the experience in the air. But what do you learn that's different? A, a million things. Yeah, yeah. So many different things. And and I should note, right, so we're in that particular research project, we're collecting, we're sort of using satellite data to, to tell us where the rains are coming from or what they're doing. We're collecting data and somebody who has more sort of technical expertise than I do is doing a radioisotope analysis to also tell us, okay, did this rain come from the Indian Ocean? Did it come from over the Congo oh, Basin? Yeah, really cool super stuff. Super cool. And then we're talking to people yeah. and we're saying when, when the rains come, what where do they come from? Exactly. I had a research meeting uh, yesterday morning. No one's in agreement. Not a single data set is in agreement either with itself or, or with another data set. It's a mess. But is it kind of a beautiful mess? <laughs> are they are they talking to each other in ways that dimensionalize the problem, the question? Ooh, I mean, maybe we'll get to a point where <laughs> okay. we can confidently say that. Yeah. So part of the reason we're doing this work is because, uh, and, and now we're sort of not in Southern Africa, we're now in East Africa and Uganda. It is a climatically complex area. You have Lake Victoria, you have the Indian Ocean, you have the Congo rainforest, and it, it makes it hard to understand what the climate is doing there. Yes. So it's not that surprising <laughs> that not all of the different data sources are in agreement, yeah. but I think we're still unsure of what that tells us. it could all be happening us. at once. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think we're still unsure exactly what that disagreement, for lack of a better word, really tells us. And then we're trying to figure out what we can glean. And I think, right, the point of the work is... Regardless of what the data says, farmers, right, who are already under-resourced, right, and are already vulnerable to changes on the landscape are making decisions, right, about when to plant and what to plant and how to harvest. And and they're making decisions with lots of different sources of information, right? But we need to understand how they're making decisions and how they're incorporating different sources of information and what the uncertainty in all of those sources of information are uh, in order to support their resilience uh, and support them changing their behaviors in ways that aren't, you know, unnecessarily risky. It certainly points to the fact that, yeah, I mean, it's difficult to, to find facts and truth sometime and to really understand what the, the reality is. And and the fact that, right, the reality from the perspective of a farmer is going to be different than the perspective of a raindrop and different than the perspective of a satellite, right? <laughs> I'm really interested in that um, raindrop, though, with its prismic stories of what mm-hmm. what water it came from. Yeah. I I love that people are talking to those isotopes. (laughs) You have mentioned so many places, South Africa Mm -hmm. and Memphis Mm -hmm. and South Central, Central L.A. and Boulder. Mm -hmm. After being in places that are absolutely, I mean, unlike one another, but you did allude to the fact that they are like one another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so can you make those same illusions in Boulder or do you even want to? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> so maybe I'll start with the sort of the the how slash why I'm here, in part because I think there's an important point to it that isn't often brought up uh, when just thinking about jobs and the reality of yeah. jobs. I am here in Boulder because I got a job in Boulder. Yes. And <laughs> that's like yeah. the main reason. And I think it's important to note that I was lucky enough and had the privilege to not be tied down to a particular locality that I could move across the country to a good job in Boulder, Colorado, right? Yeah. And everybody, you know, who's finishing their PhD or everybody who is just finished school or whatever it may be transitioning have doesn't have that yeah. that luxury. And so I'm I'm certainly very happy to be here in Boulder, but I, I could be anywhere. 
that. Any space that could support your research because yeah. because you're moving, you're yeah. sa- you're satelliting from the 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 university yes, that hires exactly. you. You're going out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In terms of, uh, I guess I'm interpreting your your question as how do I. I mean, I could just say it. I could be like, Boulder's so white. It is. Right? So we can just we can put that on the table. Yes. I think one important thing to note is sort of with the exception of the time that I've spent in on the African continent, since graduating from high school, I have always been in the minority. Right? So in undergrad, I went to a, you know, probably more diverse than Boulder. I should look at the numbers. I went to Princeton for undergrad. Uh, and then for grad school, I lived in Asia for a time. Right. So I'm, I'm used to being the only black person for so sure. Okay. And so what what comes along with that is and I think I think I'm lucky in that this aligns well with my natural personality, which is finding and building community where it doesn't exist. Um, so, you know, I'm currently like one of the the organizers of a meetup group for black people in the area. I, you know, am always looking out for sort of communities of color where they exist and and sort of bringing and, and other communities where I plug in. Yeah. So I think that's that's sort of the reality that I've lived with for a very long time. And so I've gotten good at kind of finding and building that community, particularly around people of color uh, and also around, I think, being a scientist as well. So, yeah, I've done that here. here and okay. and it's definitely enriched my experience for for sure uh, and made it made it feel less isolating. Yeah. And your community and the sciences, it sounds like there's an influx of, of, of different ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. And does 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 Boulder make space for you in this in this in this way that you're trying to look at? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> do you like do you so. feel lit right now so. in your work and in your research? Yes, yes. And I think I think again now more than ever disciplines, mm-hmm. schools, institutions, right, are thinking about you know, why there are so few people of color, for instance, in certain STEM fields, for example, and and really trying to reckon with the realities around the way that we teach, the way that we conduct research, the way that we talk about our work and how that might have been exclusionary for a really long time. Yes. So, again, I think now more than ever, people are willing to <laughs> to think about yeah. these intersections. Do you and, find that from students? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we're piloting a new environmental racism course right now. And I think they're having some really challenging discussions around sort of race and class and and gender and sexuality and systems. Right. So they're talking about queer and feminist theory and the intersections with the environment and indigenous theory and right uh, all these critical theories. And I think that the students are absolutely receptive and and I think want these intersections in their their coursework. That's so exciting to me. I, I feel like that again in the space where talking about climate change is so can be so hard and and so I don't just it's heavy mm-hmm. when you intersect it with these other spaces of identity yeah um, that there becomes besides just the world that we're all on there's the world we live in and that's in us mm-hmm. and it does feel like from that perspective it could really spark students to stay in the work yeah. and to have new discoveries. Yes. Does that feel true for you when yeah. you yeah. yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And one one thing I talk about a lot in terms of the discipline and specifically the, the sort of field of conservation is the reality that what so there's this thing called the North American model for wildlife conservation, and that is essentially how we conserve wildlife in well the world over at this point, but is what established Yellowstone National Park, for example, right? The, the world's first national park, which is a really big deal and quite exciting at the time. But right, that that system of conservation was established by a very specific type of person, right? A, a white hunter 
male, generally wealthy, sort of a mix of uh, urban and rural with folks in uh, rural areas hunting and then also folks from urban areas going to rural areas to hunt. But right, they set up this this plan for conservation that's now been replicated across North America and exported those bodies. Exactly. Exported globally and was literally a specific the the one type of individual that that was sort of there at the time and had the most power. That created conservation essentially as we know it today. And I think there's been a lot of movement in terms of thinking about other ways to to understand relationships with the environment, community-based conservation, community-based natural resource management, but it does all sort of still fit into this foundational approach to conservation that you know, if we rewound the clock 300 years and had different people setting a system up, it could look, we can't even fathom what it might look like, right? Because of this reality that's been created for us. But I think that students are excited to have those conversations and think about what the alternatives are and think critically and creatively and in ways that we haven't in the past to kind of move us forward and and sort of reckon with the reality of that, the origins of, of this field and the way that we think about nature and conservation. So, yeah. Okay. That was amazing. Thinking about it just makes me really think, like, if we could rewind, what would that movie look like? Yeah. Right? And if we yeah. could work with film students to actually show a different shaping mm-hmm. of how we take care of our national parks. We should do that. We should do that. We should make that film. We should do that. Truly. It's really exciting to me. Um, okay, we're going to make that film. Okay, so <laughs> the quick and dirty is a time for you to answer some questions. It has to, it, it, it has to be quick. doesn't have to be dirty. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask you things about anding mm-hmm. in your life, in the world, and you're just going to lay it on me. Okay. You feel good about this? No, but let's go. Okay, okay. <laughs> you can't lose. Okay, what is a way that you and in your daily life that folks wouldn't expect? Uh, I, I I think you'd appreciate this. I, I have a background in dance, and I love dancing, and so I think about sort of dance in everything and all things. So, yes. Okay, <laughs> but then I have to follow up. What styles of dance do you enjoy? Uh, so, hip-hop and Latin, mostly. Okay, so you're coming over to dance. and <laughs> Yeah, let's okay, do it. <laughs> let's do it. Okay, we have so many things. Great. Okay, is anding limited to your personal or professional life? No. 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 <laughs> but how do you necessitate anding that maybe crosses the streams of personal and professional? Okay. It's supposed to be quick. Mm-mm-mm. I mean, I, I think it, it goes back to I'm allowed to see myself in this work, right? Ecology and conservation should not be removed from the scientist and the person doing the work. And I think that that's really important for moving past the sort of fraught history of of conservation and natural resources. So, yeah, I put people in where they often don't belong. (laughs) Yes, just add people. Okay. How do you and in this one wild and precious life in terms of not thinking about what it is you're meant to be, but what is it you're meant to do? I don't know if this gets into your your question, but I see myself as I am a force for joy. And so I think about joy in all that I do. Joy is the and to all that I do. That's 100% magic. <laughs> and I feel that vibrating from your human self. You're, I, I've had a really hard day. You wouldn't know it. I got pulled over by a cop. My mom's in the ER. I was oh, late to teach, and I was in a three-and-a-half-hour meeting. And I am so happy being in this space with you and learning with you. I feel like there's a generosity for me to mess up and not know, whether it's about the environment, about science, about data collection, about racism and how it works in our country. I'm really—thank you. So I just want to— 
this is not the end of our time. I'm just saying thank you now. Okay, I'll thank you again also. Okay, um, are there ways that you and when you wish you would only? Yes. So I think because I think about people, I think about equity, I think about the environment, I think about convening and bringing people together, I probably just do too much. <laughs> and I probably should should focus on a couple things as opposed to trying to do all the things sometimes. So I could be your time bouncer and I could just text you and be like, whatever you're doing right now, if it's not totally necessary, <laughs> can you stop doing that, yeah. Karen Bailey? Okay. <laughs> I'm not gonna, but you <laughs> but could. Yeah. And guilt doesn't work with you? It works with me. Uh, I think it depends on the type of guilt. Okay. okay. <laughs> we'll work on that in our friendship. Okay. Um, when has ending gone wrong for you and what did you learn? I don't know if I have a quick answer for this one. I'm too much of an optimist. It's all just a learning experience. I'll take that as an answer, actually, that when it's gone wrong, it's actually going right somewhere else in the future. exactly. Okay, so future Karen feels great. Okay, future Karen uh, has learned from the gone wrong even in the moment. Okay, here's super fast. Bands with and in them. Benny and the Jets. I don't actually think counts as an answer. Again, it's not a real band. That was from a song. But that's okay because you deal in not real things also. I love it. Favorite anding foods. And they could be things you made up. Like I mm-hmm. I, I have some go-tos. I want to hear what yours might be. Oh, I, I love pizza, uh, pineapple on pizza. That's I stand by it. I don't care if you don't like it. <laughs> Great. I do like it. We're going to be fine. Okay. Okay. Um, words that have and in them. <laughs> All I can think of is ampersand, and that's not helpful. (laughs) And is in an ampersand. We're we're totally taking that. Okay, your anding wardrobe. You go to get dressed to show up full Karen. How do you and? Um, My earrings. I always have big, fun earrings, uh, and I try to include color and fun shapes. And uh, sometimes I have earrings that say Black Lives Matter, sometimes messages. So my earrings for sure. Your earrings are your anding. Yeah, Yeah, that's brilliant. (laughs) Anders out there who you admire. Oh, gosh, too many people are, are coming to mind. To, to, to yeah, this go. room just got really crowded with your imagination. I just <laughs> So it's not that you're not going fast. You're just not going loud. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I think I and the people who can make science accessible. Uh, or I appreciate the, the, the people and admire the people who are anding in their science. And I think that includes a lot of people, which is why I'm struggling to, to name just one. Okay, uh, Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson comes to mind. I need to get to know them. All right. Final piece here. Okay, if you had, this is your moment, you're maybe at a podium at a graduation, or maybe you're just like sitting with students who are about to go into the world. You have a proverbial piece of advice that begins with and, like I would say, and read more Mary Oliver. (laughs) And always see yourself, your values, and your communities in your work. Karen Bailey is an assistant professor in environmental studies at the University of Colorado, Boulder. The Ampersand is written and produced by me, Erica Randall, and Tim Grassley. If there are folks you'd like to hear from on The Ampersand, do please email us at asinfo@colorado.edu. Our theme music was composed and performed by Nelson Walker, a CU Boulder alum, brilliant cellist, composer, and a fantastic dancer. Episodes are recorded at Interplay Studios in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Erica Randall. And this is The Ampersand. Ampersand.